Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, everybody out there in podcast land. You are in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza. And I am David. And really excited for this guest today. Um, for those that know me and those that know David, we've been talking about doing vision quests in different areas around the world. And we actually have a guest who takes people. He has a 30-year career taking clients on Vision Quest. He also does wilderness adventures all over the world, uh, the American Southwest, Vermont, Mexico. And he has a new book, The Vision Quest, a guide's training manual for those that have never been on a Vision Quest before. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome our expert to the podcast, Sparrow Hart. Welcome. Well, thank you, Hamza, and thank you, David. It's uh, good to be here. Yes, thanks for being with us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as we were talking a little bit before signing on, uh, there are a lot of listeners that are into uh, personal development, intrinsic motivation, and everything under the sun. And when we get go past and peel back the onion, a lot of conversation does lead into vision quest. And so when I was looking out for experts such as yourself, I figured – with your 30-year experience, you'd be a great guest to be on our podcast. Well, thanks. And you're right. I've been doing this uh, since 1987. So that, at the very least, says uh, I'm an old guy. But I have been leading Vision Quest since then, and I I, uh, the quests I lead are all in a small group format. They're eight people or less, and I figure I've led about oh, somewhere around 180 small group vision quests. Uh, wow! Yeah, and I've, I've, uh, in terms of personally going on vision quests, I've gone on about 35 of my own. So, yeah. So, wow. I think well, with that. The question I would have is what made you start in 1987 as those in the spirit world or those that are in the spiritual community know that as the year of the cosmic conversion. Oh, yeah. I remember that. That's right. And so that was a a year uh, that was was huge. And by you kind of, it sounds like you're shaking your head to that, it was huge for you as well. Were you in the spiritual community before 87? And what led you to uh, the specific areas of vision quest? Well, I um, probably just a very short backstory. I would say is um, I was I was in college in the San Francisco area from 1966 through 1970, and as you know, the Bay Area in that time was full of political turmoil and uh, the Summer of Love (LSD) and I was in college then, and um, although I was a a working-class kid, I was, um, you know, I uh, had got a scholarship to Stanford, which was a very elite school, but it was just in the ferment of the times, and basically, if I were to um, generalize it, I would say the most important thing I learned in college was that I wanted no part of the life that college was preparing me for because back then yeah an elite institution and and at that time everything that um that involved we would go from there put on a tie earn a lot of money sounded like 
the death of the soul. So uh, from there, I um, uh, a couple years later moved to Vermont uh, through the 70s. I was in one of those legendary Vermont hippie communes. Um, and basically, I decided, I, I really was clear where I didn't want to go, which was into that ordinary uh, consensus life of making money. But knowing where you don't want to go is very different than knowing where you do. And all I knew was I had these images of um, a life that was more deeply connected to the earth, that had a strong spiritual com component and a thriving community. And so through the 70s, I was in that commune and reading lots of books. And uh, in 1979, I read the book Black Elk Speaks, which was the story of a Lakota holy man who had had this great vision back in about 1870 and of, um, that was kind of became a vision that his whole whole people enacted on. And they, he, he came back from actually being in a coma and told this journey of where he'd gone. He was taken up to the top of the mountain. And he became a holy man, and the book talked about uh, all the vision quests he'd done in his life. So here I, uh, here I was sitting in Vermont 100 years later, and I read that book, and I said, I have to do that. I have to do a vision quest. And, um, and so the next summer, 1980, I stuck out my thumb and hitchhiked to the Black Hills of South Dakota and uh, went on my first vision quest. And, um, and, you know, and, yeah, I knew very little about vision quest. I, was, uh, I had a lot of enthusiasm and not a lot of wisdom or smarts, but uh, sometimes spirit smiles on the beginners and uh i had a incredibly powerful altered state experience and at the end of that i knew that leading vision quest was going to be a big part of my life's work even though at the time so i knew that even though i didn't didn't know at the time what that would entail so that was how i my initial start on that path was um so spell for those that are listening, that I mean, you know, a lot of people have probably heard the term vision quest, but for those that don't don't know exactly what it is, can you explain a little bit exactly what a vision quest is? Yeah, I, I'll explain. I'll explain in simple terms what it is and what it isn't. And the okay. reason I was what it isn't is that most people, when they hear the word vision quest, feel like, oh, that's a Native American thing, and. Um, it's mostly, certainly in this country, it, it has that reputation of being a Native American thing. But a vision quest is an incredibly powerful, transformative ritual that, that involves three core elements to it. Uh, one is that you're completely alone in solitude. You know, there's no human companionship, no conversation, no... <laughs> I could these days, no books or cell phones. So you're uh, completely alone. It's just you and um, you can say yourself, but it's you and nature. And that brings to the second co component. So you're completely alone. You're in nature. Uh, usually that involves a wilderness area, but some part of nature that's undisturbed and unspoiled. 
So solitude, nature, and your fasting. So for the time of the vision quest, you're not, uh, you're not eating any food. In, in most of the vision quests these days, it involves you are drinking water, but you have no food. Although some of the traditional vision quests of the fast were also uh, going without water, with the water as well. But, um, so what I want to say, just to say that it's, it's not necessarily a Native American thing, is that in um, 500 B.C., in other words, 2,500 years ago, Buddha walked into the forest to fast. That was a vision quest, and the story of Buddha's enlightenment has been with us ever since. Um, certainly, if uh, people read the, read the Bible, knows Christ went into the desert and fasted for 40 days and nights. That was a vision quest. Um, when Moses was uh, leading the Israelites out of Egypt, at some point he stopped, went up top of Mount Sinai and fasted to ask advice from, of how to lead his people. That was the vision quest. So, and he, in, even in the, in the start of Islam, Muhammad went into a cave and fasted and had a great vision. So, so this is, uh, I guess the, the appropriate term is it's pan-cultural. It's a, a ritual that's been um, very big in human history. And in those three or four instances I mentioned, they, they've started major world religions. But, um, but that practice of involving three things, solitude, going into nature, and fasting, those are the core elements of a vision quest. And, um, and so, yeah, and today there's a modern there's a modern version of that that you know people who guide vision quests today always this ritual this process has to be adapted to the community that it's happening in so so a vision quest today wouldn't be the same as a vision quest you know um 500 years ago on the uh plains of the uh, american west so, yeah. so a basic overview yeah let me ask you real quick. So you mentioned on that first one that you, the experience you had, part of it, you went to altered states. Did that involve, like, peyote or ayahuasca or anything like that? Um, no, it didn't. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with those plant medicines, but um, basically on, on, on a vision quest, uh, those are usually not part of it. Um, it it's, uh, it's an incredibly powerful ritual on its own and in fact I would I would say uh, and and you know the, the throughout the world there's many many different forms of um, dipping the bucket into the deep well and and pulling up um, information from the unconscious or from um, from deeper parts of ourselves and and certainly those plant medicines are one of them but but the vision quest is is another and uh, Certainly, in my experience, it's it's the most uh, powerful one I found for for a good number of reasons. So. Yeah, I would ask about the. You said the top three are you're completely alone, you're in nature, and then you're fasting, and then you mentioned the world religions. So thanks for that history lesson. And I know in a lot of communities, it's important to fast at least once a month. Mm-hmm. 
And so are you do you also incorporate fasting when you're not preparing for a vision quest? Um, I I have at various times in my life. Um, yeah, but at you know, um at various times in my life I would fast one day a month or at other times when I wanted to do a cleanse I might uh fast for a longer period of time. But but in general, in terms of a in terms of a vision quest and in terms of fasting generally, um, it's important to fast for more than one day, um, because uh, just the the physiology of it is, if I were to wake up tomorrow and and start fasting, tomorrow morning I would have about two thousand calories of blood sugar in my blood, and so. So it would take all of tomorrow for me to use that up. Mm-hmm. So it, it takes about 24 hours to use the use up the the blood sugar, the glycogen that you already have in your blood. And when that's gone, then the effects of the fast start. So so if you just fast for a day, um, it's certainly good for you. It gives your uh, it helps. Uh, it gives your uh, digestive system rest, and um, it's helpful on just a physical level, but the effects of fasting really don't start on a one-day fast. So. Sure. And I, I just want to stay here for one second because, I mean, you said we're, when you go on a vision quest, uh, it's not like it was 500 years ago. And as David pointed out for the plant medicines, that with ayahuasca or any of these retreats, it is recommended that you fast for a period of time before actually going on them. And yeah. I just wanted to stay here for a second because, you know, it's not 500 years ago, but today's diet, at least in North America, it, it's constantly eating. So you're not giving your digestive system a chance to relax. So uh, do you feel that in any form of spirituality that you could probably take it Let's say you were at a five and you wanted to get to a seven. Fasting would enhance that. Um, uh, you were at a five in in what category? I'm I'm not. If you're in a if you're a category five of your spirituality, like your um, any level of spirituality, do you think that incorporating fasting would help give you a boost that you may not have thought of thought about? Um, well. What I think is, I, I think in, intention is really important. Um, so, um, so for example, if I mean, there are many people in the world who fast for 24 hours just because they can't get food. <laughs> so, um, so their so their fasting isn't intentional. It's it's just because of circumstances. So. Um, I think if I think if you're fasting with an intention, in other words, I'm going to go without food for the next three days because I want to, and it could be cleanse my body, or it could be more. There are kind of psychological. There are psychological effects of fasting. So I think if your intention is to experience that, it can be really helpful. Um, and uh, you know some of those psychological effects are that again after 24 hours, it starts to change our awareness. Um, you know you've, you you guys have probably heard of a Type A personality. You know it's mm-hmm. just, um, a ty- it's 
a type A personality gets up and says, oh, I have this list of things to do, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do that, and, and it's like we have our plans and agendas for the day, and th those tend to dominate the, the much more subtle uh, aspects of our life. But when you fast, that type A personality, tend, ap after that first day is over and you start to get the physiological effects, we get much more less type A. In other words, like on a fast, on vision quests, um, people get into the second day and all of a sudden, you know, things are bubbling up into their mind. They're thinking about people that they haven't thought of in 20 years and somehow those people are present or dreams, dreams they had when they were 20 that they've forgotten all of a sudden they're back. And so uh, one of the reasons fasting, one of the reasons fasting is a part of every vision quest is it, it brings those things that, that are, we forget about. They're usually on the back burner because we're so invested in what am I going to do today and what do I, and, and the plans we make that, those things get forgotten. And certainly when you fast, those things that are on the back burner that we usually don't think about start coming up and presenting themselves. And, and yeah, that's certainly one of the big advantages of fasting is to all of a sudden you start dealing with the things you've forgotten about and haven't paid attention to for a long time. Uh, and you mentioned that if you, you can't fast for a day because of all that sugar that you're trying to process in that one day. And the other side of fasting for your uh, transformation during a vision quest, you said uh, the first one is being completely alone. And mm -hmm. so I'm thinking about, I always like coining Tim Ferriss, who had mentioned weapons of mass distraction with uh -huh. all of our communication devices and such. And so a lot of people aren't completely alone because we may be tethered to some type of electronics. So what type of fasting would that person take? Because I would imagine there would be some type of shock if you're not used to being completely alone or being in silence. Like we have, a, we have a retreats here where there, you, you can't talk for the whole weekend. And a lot of people, they usually leave that, not that first night, but that second night is just the, the it's just too loud. <laughs> that noise in their head is too loud. They can't take it. And, and they try to tell us that if you break through that day, it, that whole weekend is worth it. But it's just so loud in your head because you're not used to being alone. Uh, how do you prepare that to get the most out of a, a vision quest? Well, on, on, a, on a vision quest, or at least in the way in the way that I've learned and developed it, um, there's a there's a four day and night solo. So on a vision quest that, that I that I lead, there would be four days and nights in which you're completely alone and you're fasting. But the whole program is is uh, eleven days long. So the the first three and a half days, there's a whole lot of teaching where. Let's just say a, a small group com comes, and and I just got back on Wednesday uh, from a quest I led in Death Valley, and there were six people. So on the first uh, three and a half days, it was a whole lot of teaching. People came, and we worked with their intent, their their reason, and their purpose for being there. 
there were that there were medicine wheel teachings, which you know a particular teaching that puts a lot of uh, a person's issues, which they often think of as personal issues, but puts it in a much broader context, in a much bigger picture context, in a way that makes it in some ways really clear and helpful to them. And then there's almost a whole day of teaching about ritual and ceremony. So, so when people actually then, um, on that fifth morning, go out to start their four-day and solo, four-day and night solo, they have a pretty rich toolkit of of rituals and ceremonies that they can do on on their quest and to address whatever issues or struggles or challenges or purposes they came with. So, um, so yeah, on the one hand, they walk out of base camp and all of a sudden off to their solo spot and they're going to spend four days and nights alone and in nature. And, um, and of course, what, of course, one of the, uh, it's very interesting in, in the preparation phase, oftentimes people feel like, oh, my God, four days and nights alone, and I don't have any entertainment. I'll go crazy. I'll be bored. What will I do with myself? And, uh, and certainly that's a great, uh, in, in some sense, that's a great sign because what they're saying is, oh, my God, it's just me and myself. <laughs> I'm going to have to encounter myself. <laughs> yeah, and, but then... Generally, after that third day of teaching of, of rituals and ceremonies, people often go from, from feeling, oh, my God, what will I do with all that time? And, but then they hear all these rituals and ceremonies and sometimes go, oh, my God, I won't have enough time to do all the things I want to do. So, um, so there's a lot of teaching about ritual and ceremony and um, uh, ways you can, and, and these are, I mean, this whole toolkit of of these rituals and ceremonies, the things called like the death lodge, which is a way to have last conversations with the people in your life, and it really brings up your deep feelings about the relationships you have and don't have. And so there's also other rituals to face the the biggest fears you have in your life and how to integrate and become friends with them and so so yeah there's a lot of teaching and preparation beforehand that goes goes into it before people are actually alone with those four days and nights out in on the land so mm. so sparrow I'm, i want to hear can you talk a little bit about that very first one that you did like you said you read that book and you said you knew that you wanted to do this and you, it's like Code of the coders and and had your very first. How long was that, and and what was that experience like for that first time? Okay, yeah, I'd be happy to share that. And I, whenever I share that, I I kind of have this like humorous attitude, and in that, if because it was the first quest I ever did, um, you know, I feel so fondly of it, but you know. Now, 30 years, well, actually 37 years later and having leave, leaving them, the reason I feel so humorous is I honestly feel, oh, my God, I was so dumb and naive. I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> but, 
But anyway, yeah, I stuck out my thumb and I hitchhiked to the Black Hills of South Dakota. And so um, in the book, Black Elk Speaks, on his great vision, he was taking, taken to the top of Harney Peak, which uh, since then it's been renamed Black Elk Peak, but, but that was the highest point in the Black Hills. So, of course, when I hitchhiked to South Dakota to do my vision quest, I have to go to Harney Peak, you know. Uh, being so literal about it, and so I I went up there uh, onto Harney Peak, and uh, I stayed for three days and nights, and I did it because this was how I first thought about it um, in my kind of crazy, enthusiastic way. I I did three days and nights with uh, no food, no water, and I also thought the point was no sleep. (laughs) So... um, so, so that's how I, that's how I did it. Um, it. It was, on the one hand, incredibly difficult, um, and just because, again, with my lack of preparation, I hiked up there with all cotton clothing, and I got rained on on my way up. And my first night, the temperature drops, and I was so I've I've never been that cold. I mean, in in uh, in uh, cartoons, they show people who are cold where their teeth are chattering. Mm-hmm. My, te- my teeth were literally chattering. So that's... Um, so, but I, I stayed and I stayed and, and I thought I was supposed... I mean, not only no food, no water, no sleep, and I also thought, and you're supposed to be praying all the time. And, um, and so uh, that's how I did it. Um, and again, I have a different point of view now, but on at the end of the uh, thir- uh, third night in the morning, I had a big altered state experience. Um, and so in th- that big altered state, it wasn't like I was, um, you know, altered states can go in all sorts of different ways. They can be altered in terms of your perception. They can be altered in terms of your emotional connection to things. Uh, This one was very much, um, the one I had on that first quest was very much a body sense in that um, I'm sitting sitting there and the top of Harney Peak is, it's all bare rock. There's no trees up there. And so I'm sitting there and all of a sudden it was like my, my whole body expanded to where I felt the mountain as if it was part of my body. So it would be almost like I would, feel, I would like feel this kind of itch or odd feeling on my back, and it tur- I'd turn around and see a squirrel running across the rocks. And so it's just, it, so it was an altered state in terms of my perception had expanded out past my body and into the body of the mountain. And so all of a sudden, so that was the altered state. It was this expanded sense of my body and perception and that lasted for quite a while, um, as you know. As you know, when you're when you actually have an altered state, often what's altered is also time. So I, it's almost like was that five minutes or an hour, and you really can't tell. Because um, so, but anyway, I'd had that altered state, and um, and then when morning came, again, I didn't know what it meant. Um, like I say, I was young. I think I was 31 at that time. Um, but I knew something had happened. 
and I knew that um, that I had, again, not having prepared and not being wise, I'd, I'd just gone hoping something would happen, and so there was this altered state. And then, um, so I felt like I had gotten something, even though I hadn't done any kind of interpreting or reflecting on it. And so I, um, it was morning. I, dis, uh, I decided to finish. It was time to go down. And, and, and so I did a closing ritual. Um, I did a pipe ceremony. Uh, at that point, I had, um, I had done some apprenticing with this medicine man, Sun Bear, and he had, he had taught about the pipe ceremony and given me a pipe. So I was, I was facing east, and I, I did a ceremony of thanks to the rising sun, and um, and I, I finished. It was mostly prayers of gratitude and hoped that I would take whatever I'd received back into the world and, um, you know, plant it in some way that it would grow. And when it was done, I kind of finished and took the pipe apart, and um, over on my right, which I was facing east, so that would have been south. I looked over, and I could see just this kind of whirring blur in the air, which it turned out it was a flock of birds. And so, and they were just whirring around and slowly moving up the mountain towards me. And um, I would say when they got about, oh, 40 feet away from me, all of a sudden they just kind of like dived and then I was in the middle of it and I was in this in the center and all of these I would say there must have been 70 80 little birds just whirling around me in a cloud and uh, uh, and they did for uh, somewhere seven eight ten seconds and then uh, as things are in flocks do they just all get the message at the same time, and so I'm in the cloud, and then, whoop, they all just shoot out towards the east, the rising sun. And um, and again, at, at the moment, I <laughs> my reaction was pretty unarticulate. It was like, wow, <laughs> far <laughs> out. No idea what that meant. Um, and so I... I, I began my long hike down from the mountain and, I mean, you know, skipping ahead six m- months. But I had this initial thought hiking down from the mountain, and I, which was, oh, I wonder if this uh, has something to do with a new name for me. And, and that's where the name Sparrow came from, was that very mm-hmm. first vision quest. So, uh, so it turns out that kind of being in the middle of this whirling flock of birds is where that name Sparrow came from, but um, as I said, that was my very first quest, and it was really important because even when I was hiking down the mountain, I, uh, again, I didn't know what it meant, but I had the very clear sense that uh, leading and being parts of Vision Quest would be a big part of my life's work. I knew that, mm-hmm. knew that then. Yeah. No way was I ready to lead then. I still had a lot of healing work to do, but I knew that. And um, and that seed got planted, and uh, six years later I was leading Vision Quest. But, um, but like I say, I had uh, a lot of healing work to do, and, and I, I really feel um, I'm really grateful for that first time. Um, 
and I'm always tempted to say crazy as it was, and I, uh, and and part of my one of the ways I think about it is certainly now having led them for over 30 years and taken a lot of groups out, um, you know, one of the things that's important to me is uh, safety. You know, if people are going to come and I'm going to guide them on Vision Quest, I want to make sure it's it's safe and that not only that it's safe, but they have all the tools they need to have a great and uh, uh, really um, transformative and uh, important quest. So when I have, the, from the perspective I have now, when I uh, look back on that quest, I go, wow, yeah, I had this big altered state. And, of course, ex- exposure and exhaustion will do that to you. <laughs> <laughs> assuming, assuming you live. <laughs> so... Uh, so but that was the first one, and it, uh, I mean, I'm happy. It kind of put me on the path. <laughs> yeah. So let me ask you, so like, for example, let's say you take a group and you, you went to Death Valley, and, you know, and they'll do this for four days. How far, as far as in regards to the solitude part, how far apart are everyone I mean, how far away are they? I mean, I know you're there somewhere in relationship to them, but how far apart is each person from each other? Um, that that can vary on each of these different quests. So the way the way it works and practically is um, we go out to the particular wilderness area, and each one is different, but but essentially we go and we. Uh, usually hike into what's called the base camp. And the base camp is actually where I will stay when when they're all out on their solos. So everybody arrives at the base camp. And then from there, uh, we arrive at the base camp, and that usually happens middle of the day, noon, 1 o'clock. And then they have the whole afternoon to walk out from there and look for and search for the spots where they're going to do their solo. So they're looking for a spot where, uh, the way I like to put it, where their inner landscape meets the outer landscape, and they both say yes to each other. So so it could vary, but I would say um, generally in terms of walking distance, people are uh, usually a half an hour to half an hour to maybe up to an hour away from base camp. Occasionally okay. people, people go further. And then away from each other, um, well, let's just say, like in the Death Valley Quest, there were six people. I would say away from each other, probably on average a 20-minute walk. Mm, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, in, in that particular landscape where we went, base, you know, there was base camp, and then um, there was about a 25-minute or half an hour walk across the flat desert, but then there were all these um, mountains and op- uh, open mouths of canyons, and so most people, you know, walked across the desert and then into one of those canyons, um, so. Okay. And so you're aware of where everyone's at, or you just know that they're out there? I mean, do you follow them to see where they're actually going to be, or do you just stay at the base camp and they they go and they find their spot? 
Well, it, it can be a bit of both in that I, I, um, all of these areas I go to, I know really well. So oh, okay. Someone, so if someone says I'm up that can, I, you know, I don't have to see that. I, I know that canyon. So in okay. one sense, I, I know generally where each person is. But um, the way the safety system works is that um, if person A goes off and is in that canyon, and then per, it, each person will have a buddy. In other words, so person A goes off into that canyon, and person B would be the person closest to them in, in another canyon, and they're maybe 20 minutes apart. Each one of them knows exactly where the other person is. Okay. And, and they have a task once a day. They, they make a spot about halfway in between their two spots, and it's called a stone pile. Um, and uh, person A, for example, would come to that stone pile every morning to leave some kind of a, a sign. It could be, you know, you know, piling stones on top of each other, this, some kind of a sign that he or she is okay. And then person B comes to that same spot, the stone pile, in the afternoon, and he or she says, oh, you know, here's this pile of stones that wasn't there, so person A, a was okay as of this morning, and then person B will change and make it look different, and so person A will come the next morning and say, oh, he or she is okay. So, so, so the, in some sense, they, they're checked on each day by each other without ever having to see each other. And, mm -hmm. then, and then it's only if, if one of the people comes to the stone pile and the other person hasn't been there, then, then we're going looking for them. So, yeah. so are you saying you're using nature's version of post-it notes? Yeah, sort of. <laughs> yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, Sparrow, how long was it from your first vision quest until your second one, and how have they changed for you personally over the years? Not like guiding them, but just for your own personal vision quest that you've done. You said you've done, like, I think, about 30 over the years? Oh, probably so, 35. 35, um, okay. Yeah, so from that, from that very first one, and, and there has been a, a really big change that happened about six or seven years later. From that very first one, which was in 1980, I've usually, I've usually done on my own a four-day-a-night solo every year. I think I've missed two or three years. But um, So um, there was a big change that happened after six or seven years. Um, I think for better or worse, um, after that first one, which because I had read Black Elk Speaks and he had had this huge altered state, on that very first one, I was going out thinking that the altered state was what was supposed to happen. So, so on that very first one, I, I, I kind of went with the idea of, oh, I'm seeking the altered state. And I think because of that, for the next five or six years, I was always looking for the altered state. And I would do, I actually these days call this my crazy phase of Vision Quest, 
requesting in that I was always looking for the bigger altered state. So I, um, one year I fasted on top of a volcano in Guatemala. <laughs> the year I was down in some um, archaeological site fasting in the ruins of Montalban, which was a, it's in central Mexico, ruins. So I was always, it's almost like I was looking for drama. And of course, if you look for it, you find it. But it's it's um, but it's a really narrow focus. And um, so I think for about six or seven years, I was always looking for, oh, it's got to be here on the highest mountain, or it's got to be, you know, it's like there was this dramatic sense of, and I think that came that motivation came from two things. One, I was a child of the 60s and, you know, uh, late 60s around San Francisco area. It's like, okay, altered state, just take this. And so I think I was still looking for that, but I also felt um, it was about a self-worth issue. I think I hadn't, I hadn't yet come to the terms of how, uh, how little self-esteem I had how much I'd been damaged by some of the issues in my childhood, and I hadn't worked through that. So I almost felt that I needed to have a big, dramatic, powerful story to just be okay. You know, it's like I needed some, you know, affirmation from the gods that would prove that I was, you know, not a a worthless piece of crap, to tell you the truth. So, um... So I think for about six or seven years, I was in that crazy phase until um, I realized that vision, vision, and that's part of the word uh, of a vision quest, vision is, doesn't need to be an altered state. The vision is just ultimately seeing what is. And certainly... Uh, the multi-dimensional nature of the universe, that's part of what is. So vision can be an altered state. But also seeing what is could be, all of a, all of a sudden, uh, if you haven't seen it before, it can be seeing all the blocks and obstacles you put in the way of uh, your vulnerability. That's a vision. And that's a vision that would make you come back and say, I have some work to do and start doing it. Or, or, you know, so vision could be just realizing how important, uh, which if you haven't realized it before, how important your kids are to you. So, so I think after six or seven years, I kind of expanded my uh, sense of vision is just really strongly seeing what is, whether it's the truth about the universe or it's the truth about your inner landscape and uh, what you need to do to make that fertile as opposed if it's barren so so that's kind of I think the big change that happened in you know about seven years after I started doing those quests each year as I realized that it was you know transformation isn't just you know the the, you know whatever some altered state where a neon buffalo comes along and tells you you've been a light worker for 10,000 lifetimes I mean uh, vision can be just a really heartfelt um, uh, knowing how deeply you care about something and how important that is to you. And it's, 
uh, I think for me that was a really important uh, moment when that change happened and I started to expand my sense of vision that it wasn't just altered state and, you know, rainbows and butterflies and yeah. <laughs> all of that stuff. You know. What about unicorns? Pardon? What about the unicorns? Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> well, that's funny. I just read a story that um, unicorns used to be seriously, well, they used to be believed in in Europe, and one of the early European explorers who was in Africa found a unicorn. It turned out to be what we now call a rhinoceros, but, you know, it was like, they just had this picture of what a unicorn, and there was this animal with this huge horn out of its throat. Anyway, uh, now I've, I've kind of, I haven't given up on unicorns, but I, 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 have, I'm, I have some real skeptical uh, side about unicorns. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, David. I was going to say, especially, you know, the, each time you, you've done a vision quest, I mean, I'm sure all of them were important in that moment at that time for whatever reason. Are there any one of those that, like, really stand out for you, of the 35 or so that you've done that just this one stands out maybe more than another or the others just for whatever particular reason? Um. You know, if if I go back through my own history, and my own personal quest, um, various ones stand out for various for different reasons. Um, um, you know, you know, having done let's say say thirty five or so, some stand out because something on the quest happened that I can't forget. So, for example, in 1996 in the Gila Wilderness on my solo, I got charged by a mother bear. I mean, that one was hard to forget. (laughs) (laughs) So that one stood out for that reason. Um, um, And, or, you know, so they each can stand out for various reasons, and and some stand out because of um, how just kind and soft and uh, joyful the whole things were. I, th- I think when you ask me that, I, I, um, I'm kind of reminded of this, this quest that um, I just finished in Death Valley. I mean, I, w- I was leading it, so I wasn't uh, going on a solo myself, but um, there was a man from Switzerland who came, and uh, his purpose of, in, you know, he had had a very, he was uh, 60, he'd had a very successful career as a financial analyst, earned a ton of money, and he realized for the last 17, 20 years his marriage felt dead, and so one of, one of his uh, purposes was to trying to decide if he was going to stay in that marriage or, or leave it, and he had um, a couple of adolescent, actually three adolescent kids, and if he was going to leave, how to explain it to them. So that was one of his purpose, but on a bigger purpose, he'd, um, he'd lived his whole life in his head, you know, as a, probably that was a good thing for a financial analyst to do. You know, always being rational, always, and he, his bigger purpose was that he wanted he wanted to feel love. He had never felt love in his life, 
he knew he should, but that's an intellectual thought. Um, and um, he had both never felt love and he'd never felt like he'd been loved. And and I want to say uh, he went out and uh, and he came back and he told his story with uh, this radiant look on his face and tears in his eyes of actually being in a state of love for most of those four days. And uh, so I, I guess what I want to say is what significant and powerful can be very, very different for, um, well, not only for each person, but what I've noticed having done it over 30 times is <laughs> what's significant for me when, you know, when I do it in 1996 and is maybe totally different than what's significant when I do it in 2019. Um, so, so that was his experience. And there was a, also a woman from Canada whose mother had died and her big issue was uh, she was struggling with, she felt she could never forgive herself for how she had treated her mother. And, um, I mean, again, with a lot of tears and a lot of rituals of, a ritual of inviting her mother into, to have a last conversation in what we call a death lodge and talking to her mother and asking for forgiveness. And, uh, and she did it. She came back feeling like she uh, accepted and uh, her, the actions that, um, that she had taken in regards to her mother through her life. Um, she regretted them, but she saw the wounds they came from and that she did the best she could, and she came back having forgiven herself. So um, I, I, I know it's almost, uh, I, I feel like the, the, the exciting or the, the big stories tend to be the altered state stories, like, the big stories tend to be like, oh, and Christ was tempted by Satan, and, or the big stories are Buddha was illumined. And, but I think often um, on a vision quest, it's um, a chance to whatever work we need to do deep in our hearts and souls, and, and sometimes that's about seeing the big picture of the universe, or, or in this man's case, being able to feel love for the first time or um, for the, the woman's case, being able to forgive herself and move on into her life without carrying the burden of self-hatred. So I think the really big and significant things, you know, and it are, I mean, if, if, if either of you guys was about to do a quest, you know, uh, I would have you write a letter of intent and say, you know, whatever, from the start of it, you know, 11 days later when you're driving away, what would you most want to drive away with? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, and certainly that's part of preparing is to know what you're, which, you know, what you're going in hoping for. I mean, I mean, it doesn't totally determine if you get it or, or you may get something totally unexpected or your question may get answered in a way you never thought of before, but but it, I think it's really important to realize what our um, what our heart and our soul needs uh, might be the same, but it might be really different than what our mind uh, tells us should happen. And, uh, 
I'd like to share something with you, Sparrow, if you don't mind. No, I don't mind at all. I'd love to hear it. Okay. So I want to take you back to 1996. Okay. And you had a big bear rushing towards you. Mm-hmm. And so the trigger for me was to give a big shout-out to uh, Ted Andrews, and you may already know him. But oh, he had Grizzly written, Man? Was, was yeah. The, yeah. He yeah. had written the uh, Animal Speaks Pocket Guide. I love it. It's still a reference book to me today. And oh, yeah. And so when you were talking about the bear, I was like, well, let me look that up. And so it references the inner voice, and it mentions that the inner potentials are awakening. Trust your own unique rhythms, not those of others. This will bring the honey that you seek. Mm-hmm. So you had to literally have a bear charging at you. <laughs> I guess in 1996 there may have been some questions of, or you actually receiving this. And so I just thought I'd share that if you didn't know that already. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly in, in uh, as, as one who's led Vision Quest and other workshops for 30 years, yeah, I'm very familiar with that book, Animal Speaks, and, um, um, you know, uh, and also, of course, the medicine cards, and, um, and, and certainly one of, one of the teachings, uh, you know, in, in preparing someone for a quest is this talk on medicine animals and in encountering animals, and, and, you know, one part of that talk is a safety talk, a physical plane, but another talk is about meeting this powerful force that's uh, you're on a vision quest and here's this powerful force or this powerful energy of some animal that has a certain medicine and you're on a vision quest and it comes to you. So, and what's that about? So, Yeah, that's certainly something I've thought about and, and certainly in, um, in one of the medicine wheel teachings that I work with called the Four Shields, it's a Four Directions teaching, the bear is the medicine animal of the West. And the West is about introspect- introspection, and the bear is, because the bear goes into a cave and, you know, comes out like months later, the bear is like the, the archetypal animal for the energy of going within and knowing yourself in a kind of deep, um, pre-conscious way. So, um, so is, it was, like the, is it like the movie uh, When Harry Met Sally in that you saw the bear in 1986 and that had a certain meaning, but if you ran into a bear in 2019, would it have a greater or totally different meaning? Well, actually, uh, I'm glad you asked that question because it brings up a great point, which is, um, and, and this is one of the things I say to people if they're going out on a quest, I would say, you know, if, if you looked up bear in a medicine animal book or, or, or if you looked up bear in, in terms of, oh, you had a dream with a bear, what does a, uh, what does a bear mean appearing in a dream? You'd get all of these different answers. Oh, bear means this, bear means that, bear is a symbol of this kind of energy. But what I always tell people is, no, that's what bear has meant to somebody else. That's what bear has meant in this culture. This is what, but it's just like this bear appearing to you. What's it mean to you? So, which may be, it may be really similar to those archetypal symbolic meanings, but it may not. And so, so, so 
when you when you say that, I would just say in 1996 when um, I had that experience, I'm I'm hiking up the river, actually in the river, and I come out of the river up on the bank, and there's these huge, enormous oak trees, and you know, and bears like uh, acorns when they're and it was late July, August, a lot of acorns, and I come around and I I look up and a branch right above me, big branch heading vertically, and I see this small animal, and I go, huh, huh, and it takes me like, you know, five seconds to realize, oh, it's a baby bear, and it's like, great, so I stand and watch, and then, you know, it takes about like uh, five seconds later, I hear this noise and look out in the same tree, another branch is the way bigger one, the mother, and Mm -hmm. she sees me, and she just starts barreling, you know, barreling, you know, across that branch, down the trunk, hits the ground and is coming at me like a freight train and it's and on the one hand I did exactly what you're supposed to do I just kind of started to slowly back away but what it meant to me at that time was um I was totally surprised how I reacted I was totally surprised at how I reacted because oh here's this mother bear charging at me and coming fast and so it was almost like I, there were. It's almost like my awareness split into two. It was like on one side, I'll call it the right side. I could feel the uh, the valve for the adrenaline drip getting turned really rapidly. <laughs> mm-hmm. I could just feel this energy happening in my body. It's like all right, this adrenaline, this adrenaline IV was getting turned on in a major way. But it was like there was whole, this whole other part of me that was just so accepting. And it, uh, it was like it was saying, well, you always wondered when it would happen and how. <laughs> you know, it's just like, oh, you've always wondered about your death, and, and here it is. And, <laughs> and I, I was shocked at how calm I was. You know, I was just like, it was okay. Um, this, is, this, is, uh, this is not bad. You know, it's just like, here I am. I'm in wilderness, but Mother Bear is just a, and I just, I was so calm, and I said, oh, my God, this this was would be so much better than hooked up to, you know, tubes in an ICU unit. And it was just like, wow, here it is. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was shocked at how calm I was. And so, um, so anyway, but. Obviously, um, she stopped before she got to me, you know, maybe about 30 feet away. She stopped and stood up and snarled and roared. And um, But what really struck me with was that, you know, I mean, probably all of us at some point wonder how or when we'll die and how we'll feel about it. And all of a sudden I had this, um, this <laughs> huge potential death running at me and what shocked me was that I was peaceful and that was incredibly comforting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I want to check in with you because we are at the top of the hour, but it sounds like David may have some other questions and I know I have at least one. How are you with time? How am I? Oh, I'm, I'm fine. I'm just sitting in my living room, beautiful day. I'm fine. Fantastic. Yeah. David? Yeah, I had did have one more question. So in the the all the vision leading vision quests and workshops you've done over the years, do you, is it 
I just want to know as far as, you know, male, female, the men, do you tend to do this more than women or vice versa, or is it kind of equal? Um, yeah, it's kind of equal. Um, the way I look at it is in term, when I think about all the work I do, it's, it, uh, the image I have is, you know, there's a tree, it has a big trunk, but it has two main branches. One of those branches is the vision quest. And I would say in terms of vision quest, uh, overall, it's probably about 55% men and 45% women. And then, and then there's the various workshops, and so I do. And most of these workshops are probably in like the idea of like four, four or five day, pretty intensive workshops, but usually happening in a retreat center. And I would, I would say in workshops, it's it's kind of a little bit of the opposite. Maybe sixty percent women and forty percent men. So, um, but it, it's it's pretty balanced. Yeah, in Vision Quest, I would say slightly more men than women, and in workshops, uh, the reverse. You know, probably three to two women over men. So. Um, and my question is to add on to what David was asking. Uh, we we speak with a lot of people all walks of life and it made me think since it's a homie podcast it made me think of this rapper Nas and he says born alone die alone and we on some level it feels that we grow spiritually in different uh, facets than our partners may and mm-hmm. so uh, some people that we speak with they may have this great transformation and they're forever changed and they're relationship is forever changed so they wind up uh, potentially ending it and so I was just wondering if through workshops or or do you offer like uh, partners workshops where they're working through their own internal conflicts together um yeah um I'll I'll answer that I'll answer this in a I mean there's a part a and a part b and so part A is, in terms of vision quests, um, I often get letters uh, or inquiries, oh, is this something sh- couples should do together, go on a vision quest? And there's a pretty simple answer. And that answer is, if either of you in the couple are questioning your relationship and whether you want to stay in it, you should not be on a vision quest together because obviously you'll be censoring or wondering what the other person's going to, how to react if you say this or that. So, but then I say, if, if you're, you're a couple and you're not questioning your relationship and whether you want to stay in it, then absolutely. It's a wonderful thing to share. So, so that's the simple answer on, um, on vision quest. It's yeah. If, you know, if you're questioning whether to stay in your relationship, you should not do a vision quest at the same time or with your partner. But if you're not, then it's fine. In regards to workshops, uh, it would it kind of depends on the workshop. But, uh, I mean, there's one workshop that I um, lead. It's usually in January. It's down in the Yucatan of Mexico. And a lot of couples come to that workshop. Um, and I think part of it's because, oh, it's winter and it's in Mexico and it's <laughs> near, near the beach. Because mm-hmm. So going to the workshop is, you know, 50% of vacation. Um, right. so, so there's a lot of couples that come to that. But I, I think in general, yeah, um, 
that the the workshops have uh, a lot a lot more of them have um, couples in it. I mean, right now I I don't have um, I don't have workshops specifically designed for couples, but like I say, that that one in Mexico gets a lot of couples, and um, and also as I mean, something I haven't mentioned is I also um, you know do through Zoom and online some coaching and counseling, and and I I definitely have have and do work with couples in that capacity. Oh, okay. And I guess the, the add-on to that was uh, in some cultures you have, their, I know in some Indian cultures, some African cultures, they have their uh, their own vision quest for teenagers, for boys, and then when they come back they become a man type mm-hmm. of deal. And so for uh, if there was a perfect world and I'm about to marry my wife and I love her to death, and, or my girlfriend that will soon be my wife type of deal, and yeah. I go, we did our checklist. We saw the uh, family law attorney of things to think about. Would you also include, like, a vision quest before getting married? Um, well, I think it would be, I think it would be great it, in the sense of it would really help your conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, one, one of the things that I uh, want to say, and I've just seen this throughout the years, is um, – um, Margaret Mead, you know, the famous anthropologist, she said, everyone sh- should realize they're going to have three marriages in their life. And what she meant, is, she said, sometimes it can be to the same person. Mm-hmm. But what she meant is uh, your, your purposes and needs and desires and values at age 25 are not going to be the same as they are at age 45 or 50. And they're right. not going to be the same. So, um, so it's just like what she's saying is a few times in your life, you're going to totally reevaluate what your purpose is, what your um, what your agenda is, and um, and at those times, you know, if you're in a relationship, your partner's going to be reevaluating too. So, um, so what I would say is, you know. At any one of those times, uh, one or both people doing a vision quest is, it at least it at least moves the conversation way along because, let's just say you're you're um, late forties and your initial thing that got you into getting married was you wanted a family, but at forty eight, uh, that time's about over. You know, the mm-hmm. kids are leaving, and it's just like. And it's time for, well, what do you want now? Because that time's over, and it's almost like um, for you and your partner to redefine your relationship, you both have to redefine what you want with the next, you know, quarter or, you know, third of your life. Mm-hmm. And for, for you to really know what you want and your partner to really know what he or she wants, then... Once that's clear, then you can talk about how can we support each other? How can we make this a a joint venture? Or does it make sense not to? So I think um, at any one of those junctures, any time there's a big transition, at the very least, a vision quest will get you a lot clearer on on the path that you want or need to take. Absolutely. And, yeah, and, and I, 
I'll, I'll just add one more thing to that is um, like, for example, uh, I mentioned this man on this last quest from Switzerland who was questioning whether to stay in his marriage or not. But um, one of the things I told him, and this is just um, something I've learned over the I, I said, look, you're not going to figure out whether to stay or leave by thinking about it. Because you've been thinking about it for months. <laughs> so the more you think, you're just going to run the same same level of thoughts you know the same you're going to run the same tape loop but i said um oftentimes i say to people on a vision quest try something different try being the person you want you're not usually so i said so you're a guy who's stuck in your head and so instead of thinking about whether you're going to stay in your marriage uh you're going to be out there four days and nights on the second morning get up and in the morning decide you're going to live the whole day as if you've decided to leave your marriage. You start out and announce to the mountains or the sky, I've decided to leave and live your whole day as if you made that decision. And then I say, and then on the third day you wake up and you live that whole day as if you've decided to stay. And so, so it's like have, have the kind of experience of, announcing it to, you know, the sky or the earth or your version of God or spirit and uh, start walking around and making plans. And and you'll get a lot more information than just trying to run it around in the uh, squirrel cage of our minds. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And we tried to squeeze 11 days into one hour, and we were unsuccessful. And so... I know, I'm so disappointed, but it gives us a chance to learn more about your Vision Quest and your workshops, so if you'd like to leave your website and how to get your new book and all that good information, people can get the the whole package. Yeah, so um, in terms of the website, uh, my, my, uh, my business name is Circles of Air and Stone, but the, the URL, the... Uh, Website address is www.questforvision.com. So that's all lowercase, questforvision.com. And that'll take you to the website, and that'll have the list, that'll have information on vision quests and other workshops. Um, it'll, it'll, it'll also be, that's also where I post my blogs and pieces of writing. Um, if you would like uh, my book, um, you could. It's available on Amazon, and the title is uh, "Letters to the River: A Guide to a Dream Worth Living." Um, so that's on Amazon, and uh, gotten a lot of great reviews from people I respect a lot, which makes me happy. So, um, so that's "Letters to the River: A Guide to a Dream Worth Living," and it's on Amazon.com. So very nice. Yeah. Well, you have just been in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza. And I am David. Sparrow, it was more than a pleasure, and I'd love to stay in touch with you. Yeah, yeah. same here. Uh, same here. Uh, however long it was, an hour, it, it just has flown by, and I, and I just <laughs> appreciate what uh, – it's been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed talking with you guys. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, it, Enjoy the rest of your day. 
Yeah, you too, in uh, in Atlanta and Colorado. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you got it. Cheers, man. All right. Cheers. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye.